0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. The world is changing faster than ever, and you need a website
2: to go with it. Whether you're a seasoned pro looking to build your following or just starting out with a brand new idea, you need a landing page that's bold, innovative, and uniquely yours.
1: Whatever your passion, you need a web designer with experience, panache, and heart. We can't help you with any of that. Hi, I'm Lou Bank.
2: And I'm Greg Benson. Are we Silicon Valley tech visionaries? No, we're podcast hosts, and that's basically the same thing.
1: And we're here to tell you about Ancestral Agave Syrup. Ancestral Agave Syrup is the 100% pure nectar of the agave plant. Now, wait a minute, you're thinking. I've had 100% pure agave nectar. Well, not like this, you haven't. That stuff is processed with a diffuser, which introduces
2: acid. Plus, it comes from Blue Weber, a monoculture that dominates farms, depletes the soil, and won't help you grow your brand or expand your e-commerce functionality
1: ancestral agave syrup on the other hand is made by slowly cooking down the pure aguamiel from salmiana agaves in hidalgo and tlaxcala two states that have been harvesting those plants for generations it also won't expand your e-commerce functionality but it will grow your brand if your brand is person who makes kick-ass margaritas or pecan pies or pancakes
2: unfortunately the families behind this tasty stuff are being offered big beer company bucks to rip out their agave and plant barley instead which would be a crime because ancestral agave syrup is about as far from the processed stuff as 100% pure Vermont maple syrup is from that sticky bottle at a diner.
1: So, don't build a homepage from one of several easy-to-use templates, but do grab Ancestral Agave Syrup. Today, our first 25 customers will also receive a special limited edition Agave superhero comic book. So do not wait. Protect the land, make better drinks, and save the bats by grabbing some today. Go to... Wait, what was that about bats? Uh, Yeah, it's an important food source on the migration path of the Mexican long-nosed bat. Huh. Huh. Yeah, the flowering stalks of the agave also provide protection from predators. Oh, that's cool. Should we get back to the ad now? Yeah, let's do that. Go to ancestralagave.com or click the link in the show notes to grab some today. Ancestral Agave
2: syrup. It won't help you build a beautiful website, but it will make your cocktails taste really, really good.
1: I'm Lou Bank and this is Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps GringX bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. I am alone for today's episode. Uh, First, because Chava abandoned me. uh, But second, because I went out on a seeking mission to get quotes from a bunch of people. And I thought, I'm already confusing uh, this episode with with, uh, a bunch of voices. So I thought, hey, I'll just narrate around them. So... I've been thinking a lot about Season 2, Episode 142, which I know that our most dedicated road trippers will recall is the ever-popular tortured agave effect. This episode started with a quote from our friend Gonzalo Alvarez, and the quote goes like this. Run it, Roy. It is a popular idea that an agave that grew in a more complicated area or a poorer soil will yield a better mezcal. But it seems like in Pulque, it could be the reverse. The agaves that have been watered and pampered the most can maybe yield a higher quality sap. For example, agaves broncos and cimarrones de monte, which are wild agaves that grow on cliffs, are known to produce tasteless and minimal aguamiel.
3: poquita aguamiel y dicen que es medio desabrida
1: tasteless and minimal Aguamiel from wild agaves. That from our friend who literally we refer to as Dr. Pulque, our friend Gonzalo. So, you know, Chava and I bickered about what this could mean and what it doesn't mean until finally I just uh, gave up and I went to Dr. Ivan Saldana, our friend who literally has his doctorate in agaves. Um, And we asked him the same question. What he came back with was this quote. If you don't have a healthy well-watered plant or a plant that has a a good shape, good succulence, it's going to be very hard to actually collect pulque out of the plant.
3: Um, At the end, you are not only getting sugars in the case of of pulque, but the plant has to do an entire work to move
1: uh, resources such as water uh, with the sugars, of course, in order to flood this wound. So, I would say that, yes, you will need uh, more shelter plants. So, you know, I thought that was the conclusion. Two experts uh, agreed, and then I was researching uh, an article for Inside Hook, and I stumbled on this, the introduction of a book from 1864. The book is titled Memoria Sobra el Mague Mexicano. So, it goes like this. The mcgay is unique in its genus. There are 19 species that embrace 14 varieties, (laughs) not all of them suitable for making pulque. Since of the 19 species and 14 varieties known to date, only 22 plants can produce it. The rest are used to extract rigging, mezcal, and pita from them, and the most ordinary are used in fences. I like that. They still use them in fences. Anyway, on with the book. Observing carefully the external and physical characteristics of the aforementioned species and varieties of maguey, it will be seen that there is a progressive scale of degradation from the finest, which is the tame, to the one that is born wild in the fields and forests, just as nature produces it, without any cultivation, and which is commonly called inferior cimarron by rustic people. Boy, I don't like either inferior cimarron or rustic people. Anyway, back to that introduction. With the magay, what is observed in another multitude of plants, as experience shows, it has improved its condition by cultivation and bears better and more abundant fruit as it goes away from the primitive type. Huh. So anyway, the the introduction goes on to discuss a very specific cultivated uh, magay, uh, what they called lacametal or diometal. Um, and uh, and it concludes that this cultivated magay produces quote abundant pulque of excellent quality unquote anyway. So there you go. I figured, okay, for literally more than 150 years, we've known farmed uh, maguey produces better pulque than wild maguey. But then I went on this visit. I I, I did a a tour uh, this past summer with some friends, and I visited Jorge Torres, this great mescalero who's uh, in Nuevo León. And, you know, I I have this habit of, okay, I, I think there is this absolute truth and inevitably, I stumble on something that is demonstrable evidence that this thing that is uh, a hard truth is not that hard after all. And so I have started literally seeking those moments. So I asked Jorge Torres, the Mescalero. Um, this mescalero who incidentally uh, uses pulque instead of water in his fermentation of his, uh, his maguey in order to, to make his what he calls a, a mescal, I asked him uh, if he thought that farmed maguey or wild maguey made the better pulque, and I got this quote from him. Well, the best pulque has always been made with maguey from the mountains. It has always been said that it is the best, the most delicious, and it makes the softest wine. It was a long time before anyone traveled to the mountains to get it because there was a lot of maguey right here. Okay, so there's Jorge for you. And then my friend Rogelio Montiel, who makes pulque, I feel like he might be the Lalo of pulque. He makes pulque with his family in Hidalgo. So I asked Rogelio, um, I was out there sourcing some agave uh, syrup, ancestral agave syrup, which you can now find online at ancestralagave.com. But I was sourcing some, uh, some syrup from him. Asked him the same question, and he said this. No, pero de vez en cuando... From time to time, when the mountain manages to ripen some magay, its meat is sweeter, the conditions that happen with a wild magay cannot be replicated on a farm. So I found that uh, both, you know, A, poetic, but also B, Completely in contrast to what I expected, given that Rogelio has acres, well, I guess hectares, hectares and hectares of Y I'm sorry, of farmed McGay. So I thought for sure that he was going to defer to farmed McGay. And then I asked another pulque producer, Tomas Rosales Tovar, that same question, and I got this answer.
0: El Maguey
1: the maguey that we forage has much better aguamiel, and the Americana, which is the strongest, most robust and largest, has the aguamiel even a little better. We made a test and completely analyzed it, and the wild maguey has better properties, is of better quality, is cleaner
2: mejores uh, mejor calidad.
1: So okay, all this this conflicting information, right? Three people who who work with pulque, make pulque, say wild maguey is the best source, and then the three academics, including one who died 150 years ago, uh, those three academics say, no, no, it's the farmed maguey. So this this put me in the mind of that old Pete Townsend song, the Who song, the Seeker. Right. He, he asked Bobby Dylan and he asked the Beatles. He asked Timothy Leary, but they couldn't help him either. Well, you know, in fact, I found my own Bobby Dylan, my own Beatles and my own Timothy Leary, and they did help me. So let's start with Bobby Dillon. In this case, uh, Sandor Katz. Sandor Katz wrote the book Wild Fermentation that literally, not only did it it spark uh, my interest in fermentation, it got me started making home vinegars, but it sparked uh, the interest of really, I mean, the, the USA, all over the world, of the the new movement towards home fermentation. He's since gone on to write a number of books, including The Art of Fermentation. So if you don't know him and you're at all interested in fermentation, you got to go check out Sandor Katz. Uh, we'll have a link in the the uh, episode page to him. But anyway, let's, uh, uh, Roy, if you could drop that quote from Sandor for me.
4: So, I mean, I have had the good fortune to um, spend some time with some pulque makers. And I, I have spent time with pulque makers who are harvesting uh, wild uh, well, uh, harvesting miel from wild maguey. and then I've also spent time with pulque makers who are accessing their miel from um, um, uh, cultivars. And I don't know that much about maguey, but y- you know, I can make an analogy to um, you know plants that I have a more intimate connection with. Um, and the one that comes to mind first for me is persimmons. And I'm not talking about the big. Asian persimmons, but the much smaller um, uh, North American persimmons, which there's no commercial market to speak of. Um, uh, You know, the only people who are eating persimmons are the people who know where to harvest them. Um, There do exist cultivars, and it happens that the other day I was visiting a friend of mine who has persimmons in a cultivar that were ready, that we just picked off of the tree, and they were big. I mean, I can see the. You know, qualities that the botanist that developed that that cultivar was 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 after they were big, they were juicy, they were low to the ground and easy to access, which the ones on the wild trees never are, but they had very little flavor compared to the wild persimmons that I'm used to. So, you know, usually I have to wait for the persimmons high in the tree to to ripen enough to fall off of the tree onto the ground. They're squished. I pick them up. I remove the debris from them. But, you know, every wild persimmon tree tastes a little bit different. And I actually have a favorite tree that, um, I, you know, during the persimmon season, I'll make pilgrimages every week or so Um, you know, to eat persimmons from that particular tree that has, um, uh, you know, really special flavor. But I think that the larger point is that natural variation in fruits, in plants can be incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of practical reasons why why people might, you know, sort of try to develop cultivars that, you know, maybe have a higher sugar content, maybe uh, uh, do wet, better in a drought, um, you know, but you'll always find like the best individuals, the most outstanding individuals from, you know, the variation that, um, you know, occurs
1: naturally. So there you go. Sandor is definitely team wild, McGay, uh, aligning with those pulque makers. Um, But then, you know, he also uh, uh, had this other quote that I I talked to him for a while. It was such an honor that I'm going to go ahead and run that, too, because I thought it was interesting. Whereas the the persimmons uh, are just about the fruit. He also brought up this example of cider making. So, uh, Roy, if you can run that cider quote.
4: You know, in talking to um, cider makers, um, you know, some people either have, you know, very specific varieties of apples that they like to use for their cider or sometimes a blend of a couple or three different varieties. But some people, especially with access to, you know, wild apples, crab apples, just, you know, use whatever they can find um, um, you know, growing off of apple trees in anywhere, you know, I, I, again, the varieties that, you know, we find in our supermarkets or, or that you'll find in um, at apple stands. I mean, there are all kinds of practical reasons why why people like these cultivars, you know, but there's something to be said for just the, you know, diversity of you know different kinds of uh uh flavors uh the, the sour notes the bitter notes and um the, you know certainly some some taste palates prefer the wider palette of flavors that they can get from a variety of wild plants than they can from the tried and true and very well known cultivars in the context of uh you know apples and the
1: fermentation of apple cider So there you go. More from Sandor uh, proving that he is definitely team uh, Wild McGay. But then uh, I went to ask my Beatles. In this case, the Beatles would be Aaron Campos of Dark Matter Coffee.
5: What I'm thinking about is the idea of uh, something that's stable and consistent that you can create uh, to a certain degree of certainty every time versus maybe something that's wild that, uh, you know, you might not be able to get it consistently. Uh, It might, you know, there's also genetics that are way more unstable than others. And the only, and when you get agricultural, uh, you know, uh, cultivars of varieties or whatever, uh you know to a certain degree those have been kind of time tested and they have a certain degree of um uh, genetic stability from if they're growing them from seed generation by generation Mm -hmm. or if they're cloning them whatever that may be so you know and and that would be the first thing that come to my head in in fact you know the producers that we work with that are doing these experiments with these wild um uh, varieties of coffee uh they really don't want to make any hard uh confident decisions until they've seen up to seven different generations from seed uh, on these varieties to see how they adapt from generation to generation. You could have things like Pacamara, which, which is kind of like a, it's a more of a, it's it's outside of um, the, ex- you know, it's an exception, I guess what I'm trying to say, where um, you have a lot of... Uh, when you're uh, propagating this through seed, you get a lot of the parental genetics uh, that pop up from those seedlings. So it's one of the more unstable cultivars that we work with uh, personally. And I think a lot of farmers will see that as something that's a difficulty that they may not want to deal with. Uh, But we work with uh, Federico. He just loves it so much. And we love that cultivar too, that we want to always make sure it's there. Um, But, you know, there can be some additional challenge uh, with things that can be genetically unstable from generation to generation. So maybe that's something that's
1: there. I don't know. Okay, so now that feels to me like maybe Aaron uh, is more Team Farmed McGay, uh, which I like. I like that I've got these two expert friends who come at it from different angles, but then I had to find my Timothy Leary. And my Timothy Leary is Mike Shalau
3: from Is Was Brewing. So, Mike, take it away my guess would honestly be personal preference or personal bias more than it would necessarily be that the microbes are doing something or the sugar in the agave is spe- specifically different. The academics want to be able to study something and kind of have control over the observations of it and make draw conclusions from it, whereas the people in the field probably want to just experience it and the differences and the weirdness of it is exciting to the people who are actually hands-on creating something from it, whereas the knowableness of, of it is more exciting to the academics but that's not based on any sort of microbial <laughs> fermentation that I can think of if you have a more of a monoculture of a one type of agave or something farmed in, in a more traditional way there's gonna be probably be a larger amount of similar microorganisms existing in that space whereas if you're in the you know out in the wild with a more diverse set of flora and fauna you'll have a more diverse set of microflora as well so you could be getting more complex or different microorganisms fermenting the uh, sugars in the pulque. Okay. So that could be something that's happening. That and then, But then that would go back to personal preference, right? If you like the more kind of feral output of the, the wilder organisms or if you like the more tame or standardized output of the farmed uh, microorganisms. And you
1: know, and and so for me, I love that as a conclusion because I I find if I'm personally out uh, drinking agave spirits, you know, it's it's rare that I find a tequila, a mezcal, any of them where I actually dislike them. Uh, there are a lot that don't interest me personally. But the things that do interest me are the things that are a little more outrageous and, uh, you know, in essence, unique flavors that I've not tasted before. Um, But that's because I spend so much time tasting them. Uh, And I think that's sort of what Mike is saying, right? Like these people who make the pulque spend so much time tasting pulque that when they taste something different, even if it's just a little bit different, it's exciting to them. If I'm out drinking whiskey with friends, I don't drink a lot of whiskey. So... The, the, I'm I'm happy with just about any whiskey you put in front of me and I think that would be more the academic style right where you you don't have the same thing over and over and over again it's uh, it's it's going to have a different effect on you uh, than if you immerse yourself in something. So uh, I don't think there is any real answer. I think so much depends on your experiences, where you come from, uh, what your palate is like, and that's going to determine whether you like the farmed or the wild more. You can like them both. Uh, But, hey, I think the key is go out and try them all, and, uh, and then you make your own decision. So that's going to wrap this episode of Agave Road Trip, and uh, and I'll catch you next episode. Hasta pronto. You've been listening to Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps Gring X bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. We're blessed with sound engineering by Roy Sierra and a theme song performed by Gabriel Oliveira and Marco Ricos. Sign up to become a road tripper and listen to more episodes at agaveroadtrip.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. And if you hated it, well, I'm sure you'll let us know that too. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at agaveroadtrip. Agave Road Trip is a production of 10 Angry Pit Bulls, Inc. Agave Road Trip is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio, supported by you for our freshest content. Subscribe to our newsletter. To subscribe to the Heritage Radio newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Connect with Heritage Radio Network on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find Heritage Radio Network at facebook.com slash Network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization using the power of education. Educational storytelling about food to build a more equitable, resilient food system. Heritage Radio Network couldn't do that without support from listeners like you. Become a part of the world's most innovative community today. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and
2: please join the Heritage Radio Network family by becoming a member. To become a member of the Heritage Radio Network, click on the beating heart of our homepage. Heritage Radio Network can become addictive. Programming you hear on Heritage Radio Network might lead you to eat, drink, and listen to more programming on Heritage Radio Network. If you drink, please do not drink and drive. Drink responsibly. Drive responsibly. Eat responsibly too. And listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly. To listen to Heritage Radio responsibly. Wear protective earbuds. While wearing protective earbuds, do not drive. Do not walk either. Sit in a comfortable chair. If that comfortable chair has a hard seat, please remember to stretch every 30 minutes. If you stretch every 30 minutes, please stay within your defined stressing capacity. And consult a doctor who specializes in stretching. If you don't have a doctor, maybe Dr. Ryan Cock,
1: the cocktail MD, can help you out. Thanks for listening. Agave Road Trip.